Sierra de Grazalema and the Parque Alconales is just some of the best cycling, in fact, is the best cycling I've ever come across. The roads were all built so wide in preparation for this, ho this hopeful arrival of um, future tourists. It's been very easy for them to put lots of bike lanes in. So things that you wouldn't associate, or at least our image of Benidorm, actually it has, for cyclists, it's quite easy to get around. That's the voice of Chris Atkin, and he spent six weeks pedalling across southern Spain. During his six weeks, he covered 1,300 kilometres, and he's going to be talking us through his bike ride in the hour ahead. On his journey, Chris kept a travel journal, which he unexpectedly turned into a new book called Just As Well, It's Not About The Bike. And that book's recently come out. In the book, which I really enjoyed reading, Chris gives us a flavour of what it's like to cycle across Spain when you're perhaps not an expert cyclist. Now, at the moment here in Spain, the Vuelta a España is still going on until the 5th of September. That's Spain's answer to the Tour de France. But in Chris's book, just as well it's not about the bike, he really focuses on the places that he visits along the way and shares some interesting little snippets of history and stories that he found found out on his travels. She was hugely supported by Franco, who kind of thought, you know, her songs should be heralded in Spain. But she despised Franco and all the money her acclaim got her, she gave to the Spanish Communist Party. There was a accident during refueling, which saw four hydrogen bombs, each one 70 times more powerful than the uh, nuclear bomb that exploded over Hiroshima. All four of them fell to earth over Palomares, the southeast coast of um, Spain. So three of them landed on the land. Two of them exploded partially, creating like a two kilometre squared plutonium fallout zone. Then the fourth disappeared. Chris started his journey in the Mediterranean city of Valencia, where he bought a bike, which I think just about lasted him the 1,300 kilometres. His final stop was the Rock of Gibraltar. Join us for his anecdotes and his insights on the places that he stopped off along the way. He'll also give some practical advice about cycling in Spain as well. And interestingly, I think for me, Chris talks about his immersion into Spanish culture and particularly the language, which was something he was keen to do during his six-week travels uh, to improve his Spanish language skills. You're listening to the When in Spain podcast. I'm your host, Paul Burge. If you're new to the podcast, this is a show which aims to bring you a little slice of Spanish culture, lifestyle, armchair travel, history, language, food and drink. And we often have great guests on the podcast sharing their personal insights and stories about life right here in Spain. Just before we jump into the interview with Chris, I'd just like to give a special shout out, as I usually do, to brand new When in Spain patrons who support the podcast very kindly by making small donations via the crowdfunding website patreon.com. So a big gracias to Courtney Casey, Theo Dinaxas, Judith Hughes and Matt Berenti. OK, so let's saddle up with Chris and let me say, as you'll find out from Chris, that really it seems that anybody is capable of doing a bike ride across Spain. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the When in Spain podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Your book, the title, Just As Well, It's Not About the Bike, A Journey Across Southern Spain. We'll talk about the different places that you visited in the podcast a bit, a bit later. Why did you choose that title? I was quite intrigued. It's a pun on uh, Lance Armstrong's uh, first autobiography, which was called It's Not About the Bike, which he called it for that reason on the basis that um, it's about you know his journey through uh, cancer survival and uh, return to the top of the sport. But subsequently, people would argue this actually just about uh, EPO and um, taking lots of drugs. Um, <laughs> so it's a so for cyclists, uh, they will know, they will recognise that uh, the potential pun on that title. It's partly on the fact that um, it's just as well it's not about the bike because the bike I was riding is was such a um, budget bike. It costs I think less than two hundred euros, and the actual book itself, it, although it's a travelogue of sorts. 
um, regarding my um, my journey it's mainly about the places I go to and the people I meet. Your route started in Valencia correct uh, on the east coast and you weaved your way down through Alicante, Murcia, Almeria, you made a stop off in Granada, Malaga, Ronda, you ended up in uh, Gibraltar. Um, how many kilometers or miles did you travel on on the trip overall and how long did it take you in total? Yes. It was a it was a relatively roundabout route. It was 1300 kilometers or so in total. I did it over, I think, six weeks. So it wasn't I wasn't breaking any records with my um, <laughs> mileage, but it was more the fact that I was very conscious about it. I didn't want to just race through all these amazing places. I did actually want to see them and explore them for myself. You weren't doing the Vuelta de España. <laughs> you wanted no, to actually no, take some time to <laughs> immerse yourself, I guess. And I guess that's something that kind of came through in the book was that this was a kind of uh, a quest for immersion in Spanish culture and Spanish language, which you you, you touch upon uh, at various points during, uh, during the book. What was uh, your inspiration to do this particular route and why did you want to bike it? I've never done any long distance cycling at all before and I knew I didn't have much money uh, so the idea of going by bike was that it was I was going to be able to enjoy uh, some slow travel. In the five months preceding my trip I'd been working at uh, Panama's largest language school where I'd been paid in Spanish uh, tuition so my Spanish skills had improved a bit but I kind of wanted to road test them and the opportunity to road test them in a part of Spain I had never been to and knew embarrassingly little about uh, was definitely <laughs> a, a large incentive to, to come and visit uh, Spain. At the very start of the book, you kind of agonise a little bit over whether to take your own, bring your bike from the UK or to buy a bike in Valencia on arrival. And I quite liked the little bit that you mentioned at the, the beginning of your story, that you had long admired the carefree spirit of travellers who brought a mode of transport abroad, but they had no intention of bringing back home with them. And for me, that sort of rings very true. You know, you hear stories of people buying old beat up camper vans and driving across Europe and then just ditching it or trying to sell it or eventually it dies and you leave it there. And that was kind of your ambition on this trip, right? You, you wanted to buy a bicycle and then leave it in Spain at the end of the trip yes partly forced upon me by my own uh, incompetence at diy and um, bike maintenance it was something i naturally went against my instincts because otherwise i knew i'd be because i have a fear that i'm just not gonna be able to sell the bike at the other end or what happens or i didn't want to be worried about these things on the route along the route but i knew that the chance of me getting something wrong with reassembling my bike was quite high and actually it was more <laughs> straightforward just to go into um, decathlon, buy the cheapest bike I could find and then, yeah, head off. And it lasted the duration without too many problems. Yeah, just about. I mean, it was it was not designed at all for what it was used for. It's like a commuter. Um, it's commuter bike that's used for like poodling around town. So it's got like seven gears. It, ha it was able to fit a pannier just about. And although my Spanish now is a bit rusty, but at the time it was okay. Mm. My um, bike uh, lingo um, was not uh, was not great. So trying to understand what had actually happened and how to repair it if it went wrong again was definitely a challenge. Sure. So it's kind of situations where you really suddenly have to gen up on very specific technical <laughs> vocabulary that you, you know, would never really learn unless you absolutely need to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, early on in the book, I think just after you left, uh, left Valencia, you talked about Gandia because I got the impression that you enjoyed Valencia. You talked about the Turia Park, the old dried up, uh, the riverbed, the, the diverted river and the Arts and Sciences Park. Subsequent stop, I think, was Gandia. Uh, just along the coast. I think you described it as, as comatose. What was your take on uh, Gandia? Strange place? Really strange. And like, I, I just couldn't really get ahead nor tail of it. As I mentioned in the book, it turns out that, of course, I hadn't put the two and two together, that it was a Sunday. There was a very large um, church service going on, um, which is basically, I, I think, why the whole town felt quite so comatose. And there was just nothing yeah, around yeah. at all but just yeah you, you kind of when you go from Valencia which is obviously this huge metropolitan incredible city that I would love to live in at some point sure um, so, and then you think right first first destination first day of cycling get to the uh, destination <laughs> of the evening and then you're there going 
what, what is this place? Just like so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what time of year would you have been there? So I left in mid-May and then cycled through until the until early July. Yeah, Gandia is a curious place. I'm from what I've never been there, but from what I understand from my Spanish friends here in Madrid. It seems that half of Madrid go on holiday there in the summer months, particularly in August. I think you you, you could probably bump into your next door neighbour in you live next door in Madrid on the beach in Gandia, from what I've heard. It's uh, it's one of those places which is a kind of resort, but for Spaniards, um, quite seasonal. Maybe May was just a bit too early for it to, to to get going. This is one of the things I noticed about my trip that I had again, from a purely um, position of ignorance, didn't know was that quite how many um, Spanish towns and cities are almost like broken into two or three different parts in the sense that they have like the coastal part of the of the city or the town, which can be, say, three kilometres from the rest of the city. And so to me, they would almost be entirely different conurbations. I wasn't actually on the sea line at um, Gandia. So I was very much in the town in, in the town itself and so therefore didn't go to the coast at Gandia. Maybe everyone had left the, the town. So everyone was either in the church or they'd gone to the beach for the weekend because the way that the route was going, I um, was parallel to the shore there and then I hit the coast at Denia. I'm just going back. What was your uh, impression of Valencia? You said it's somewhere that you could see yourself living and I've heard lots of people say that. And I have to agree with you. Um, I would swap Madrid for Valencia in a heartbeat I think <laughs> yeah I mean again I, I, I didn't want to say this but like I, I love Madrid and Madrid's an amazing place but um I have to say if I was forced to choose Valencia does win for me um yeah, yeah just yeah. I mean the architecture the history I mean obviously you're both in Madrid but also the beach um, and the the, the Turia riverbed is just how that's been used and this the city of sciences and things is just phenomenal um i i I love the number of bike paths and things around there it just had a nice vibe to it and also and there were so many different parts of valencia you could go and enjoy on a weekend i think a great place to choose as a place to live in spain and a perfect place to go for a long weekend break and um and I have to say, yeah, it caters really well for cyclists. So the, the cycle lanes, they've got it going all around the city, down the main boulevards, along the river. And I think there are cycle lanes that actually take you all the way down to the, to, in fact, I've cycled it, all the way down to the beach, which is a couple of kilometres from the city centre. Yes, exactly. No, indeed. Um, I was very impressed by all of central Valencia and thinking this is a great city. And then thought, oh, you know, well, I do enjoy a beach, so I'll go, go and have a look. It's an amazing place. Yeah, I agree. Something for everyone, definitely. I can't remember exactly where this was, but... Um, there was a point where you tackled, I think, one of the steepest roads in Spain. I think you described it as having a 22% gradient. And you yes. said something like, even the mountain stages in the Tour de France aren't as ridiculous as this. And I think you said the Alpe, the Alpe d'Huez, one of the most iconic uh, uphill uh, segments of the Tour de France is only 12% gradient. Whereabouts was that and how was that for you and why did you decide to tackle that? <laughs> well it, it wasn't intentional at all. Um, it was gen- genuinely quite scary because I've never ridden anything that was anywhere near that steep and also yeah. when you've got so much stuff on your um, back wheel the amount of momentum that is basically coming behind you and trying to encourage you downhill is quite a lot so you're there just like pinching the brakes as much as you physically can. I just left um, Calp, I think, uh, which is, again, a place I didn't know anything about. Um, do, do you pronounce it Calp or Calpi? There are two ways to pronounce it, depending on whether you're uh, using the Alicante language or Valencian language, Valenciano, maybe. They call it Calp without the E, and in Castellano would be Calpe. Famous for its big, what they call the North Rock. It's like a sort of smaller version of Gibraltar, right? <laughs> Yes, yes, again. But when you're not expecting it at all, it's quite shocking when you're suddenly cycling along yeah. and you, you suddenly see that. So, yeah, so um, it was there. And then I was heading towards Altea, which I have to say was my favourite um, like traditional village of like white buildings. And um, and so it was between the two. I was trying to avoid the main road, which went through various tunnels. And I was on a hill outside of Calp, which was, I think, higher than the Northern Rock itself. Like I could look on pretty, I think I was looking down upon it. And then was trying to work out how on earth I was going to get down to the sea at Altea. And the only way across was on this tiny road, which is, I think, been relatively newly laid. It was just for a section incredibly steep. And there were a lot of half built houses, which you're there thinking, was it because they realised halfway along this is not worth it? 
but <laughs> hauling all the construction stuff up. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Altea, actually. It's, I've never been to Altea, but again, I've heard it's all very picturesque. And you did describe it in the book as a place that would have fitted the bill perfectly as somewhere to spend a, a longer period of time, maybe find a little job in a bar or something and, and set up camp there for a while. Um, so you were quite taken with Altea. Yes. Yeah, maybe. I think for, for my purposes of trying to actually get a grip to, with Spanish, whilst you could go to Valencia and things have a wonderful time, I know that um, my own sensibility would mean that I would end up speaking more English than I would like or than I should. So therefore, maybe a proper immersion in a smaller place such as Altea would have been the way to go. For any listeners who are considering spending time in Spain to immerse themselves and improve their Spanish, yeah, I mean, yeah, go to smaller places, smaller towns and villages for sure. You're going to find fewer English speakers and have to push yourself to speak Spanish more. (laughs) Uh, I know that from many uh, British friends of mine who say the same. You included some interesting little snippets of history about Altea, which I have no idea about. Apparently in the 60s and 70s, it attracted sort of the bohemian crowd. You mentioned some literary figures, but there was one in particular which caught my eye, which I found really interesting, was this singer and actress called Pepe Marisol Flores. It's a kind of child superstar you talked about. Franco was a huge fan of hers. He, he, He loved her performances. Tell us a little bit more about that. Were you aware of Pepe Marisol Flores? Yeah, I've seen footage of her. I don't know who she is, but I didn't know this little kind of Franco yes. connection. When I was writing on this, being like, I'm pretty sure she is like really famous in Spain, but it's difficult when I don't have that many um, connections to Spain going, how how household name are we talking? <laughs> um, oh, no, I so think yes. among the kind of older generation, she's a household name. I yes. think uh, younger yes. generations, not so much. She's definitely a well-known singer. But yes, yeah, so she was hugely supported by Franco, who kind of thought, you know, her songs should be heralded and uh, really put front and centre in Spain. But she despised Franco and uh, despised everything he stood for. And all the money her acclaim got her, she gave to the uh, communist Spanish Communist Party. And um, and sold all her awards, um, I think, to, to get money um, to the uh, Spanish Communist Party. And then also uh, she at one point when she married, she named Fidel Castro, I think, the her godfather. Again, like it's one thing going, I'm going to um, send money off to uh, to support a, an organization I, I think is important. But to go all the way out and to really publicly snub Franco and the regime by getting uh, Fidel Castro as your children's godfather is um, was, quite, was quite something. Yeah, I mean, I wonder when that was, if he was yeah. still alive and I, what his reaction was to I, that. I'm just thinking, I think actually it may have been after Franco died. But even yeah. so, like when you've been so publicly supported by the, the at least the previous regime, you would have thought you'd have quite a few allies at least who you would be um, upsetting by doing so. And so she was she was from Altea. I want to talk about Benidorm because you stopped off in Benidorm <laughs> and I've got to admit, I've never been to Benidorm and I'm, I was a bit like you, I, <laughs> like some degree of trepidation and do I really want to go there, you know, after all of the kind of things we hear about Benidorm. But you said it in the end won you over. Uh, we can be a bit po-faced about Benidorm and maybe a bit snobby of this kind of extreme mass tourism. How did you find it in the end? I did go in with a level of curiosity, but also trepidation, thinking I am in a beautiful part of the world. Why am I choosing to spend <laughs> a, a day or so in Benidorm, which by all accounts, I should dislike quite strongly. It's a part of cultural cultural references and things. And it's one of those places you do want to have an opinion of. It'd be a shame to travel through it or travel near it and then go, oh, no, I, I haven't got a uh, opinion on it. I'm just going to echo someone else's views on, on it. I, I turned up and I was... You see like the or the heaving streets, the the relatively old demographic, and you're thinking, yeah, I'm not sure this is a place I would choose to spend a great deal of time. Particularly when you've got so many other stretches of coastline around there, which are beautiful and serene and empty. But I have to say, there were parts of Benidorm which are beautiful, and that the, the beaches although busy, were far uh, cleaner than I um, thought they would be. Because of the level of development and the vision that uh, the mayor, Pedro Zaragoza, put forward back in the 50s and 60s, the roads were all built so wide in preparation for this ho- this hopeful arrival of um, future tourists. 
it's been very easy for them to put lots of bike lanes in. So things that you wouldn't associate, at least our image of Benidorm, actually it has, for cyclists, it's it's quite easy to get around. It has the, uh, the um, I think it's the Balcon del Mediterraneo, I think, which is a beautiful like white palisades, it views over both the bays in Benidorm. People generally who know what they get, what they're going to get in Benidorm is like they're going to have a good time. It's geared up to um, a certain audience. But the fact is they clearly do it well because this, it's the same people coming back time and time again. You wonder how Benidorm's uh, long term appeal, like when the older generations are no longer able to return, whether our generation younger will go, actually, the Benidorm remains the place for me to to spend my holidays. But people have been saying this, I imagine, for decades. So oh, and Benidorm seems to be doing for 40, okay. for 40 plus 50 years, I guess. Yeah. So, I, I, so considering so many people are so snobby about it, it's not for everyone. Like I know, for example, my parents would, would hate it. But there's a lot of people who really enjoy it. And it's very good at what it does. Although parts of it are slightly run down, a lot of it isn't. It's a fun place to spend time in the sun. I think probably a model of how not to do mass tourism, I guess. And maybe for that reason, it kind of it kind of served a, a useful purpose of that was never really replicated again to such an extent anywhere else in Spain. I think I read in your book there was an interesting statistic like was it the highest number of skyscrapers or high-rise apartments per capita in the world or something crazy. Yes, yeah, which is amazing. And yeah, I mean, I expected Bendom to be built up, particularly in comparison to Altair. And, and when you're approaching it, you are thinking, yeah, wow, this place really is big. But it's great, though, in the sense that it does mean that it's not this sprawling mess that so many other cities that kind of grow up almost from nowhere end up being. And actually, it does mean that a lot of people get the sea air, they, they get they are able to remain close to the beach, which I think is part of the reason why Benidorm is still attractive to many people because they don't want to be having to get on buses and trains and things just sure. to get from their hotel to the beach. It'd be interesting to see whether Benidorm will eventually have to reinvent itself to some extent, as you said, as uh, generations that have been going there for years eventually stop going, whether they'll have to try and attract a new crowd or not. Um, I've heard some people say, this is quite an interesting angle on Benidorm, is that, well, at least it's somewhere that was kind of specifically designed for high levels of tourism almost from the outset, obviously. You know, it was a fishing, a declining fishing village initially. But I've heard people say that, well, it's better that people go to Benidorm on the holidays than sort of ruining historic cities with over tourism. These uh, historic neighbourhoods being overrun with Airbnbs and gentrification. At least Benidorm is just ready made for that. And we're not ruining anything historical or any heritage. After that, um, you skip down to Murcia. What was your impression of Murcia City? Because I went, I wasn't bowled over by Murcia, particularly talking about the city. I mean, I loved uh, Cartagena. I thought that was interesting with the uh, Roman amphitheatre and some of the naval history behind it as well. Yeah, I I liked it. I didn't know very much about it at all. I mean, it was I think it was bigger than I expected it to be just because I was thinking, you know, it's just a, again, my ignorance just being that it's a city that's not on the coast. I was going there to meet a friend who I'd been meeting to like practice my Spanish and his English for a couple of years beforehand. And so I guess my expectations were relatively low. It does have some beautiful architecture. Certainly, if I had to choose like the destinations that you really should go to when visiting this part of Spain, Mercia probably isn't near the top of that list. Yeah, I mean, there's the um, Plaza del Cardinal Beluga. Beautiful place to people watch. Like it's it was it's great. You just basically a lot of the people in the city are going through there to get to somewhere i was able to like just eavesdrop on different bits of spanish conversation um watch life go by and it's just a very yeah it's a very pleasant way to spend time but in terms of actually things to see and do far less than there is in uh, other spanish cities yeah i would kind of go along with that um and it's a big city i think it's like the sixth or seventh biggest in spain yeah. i think the cathedral was beautiful the square that you'd mentioned, there's a lovely park and we've got the river side there as well. I don't know, other than that, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't bowled over, but I liked Cartagena a lot, run down in a charming way. I wanted to talk about the nearby Palomares because I didn't know this either. And you flagged up an interesting story about it, about hydrogen bombs going back to the 60s. Tell us a bit about that, because I had no idea about this and it's... Uh, it's something that happened that could have been absolutely catastrophic for Spain, but luckily wasn't. 
Pirates. I mean, I was pretty embarrassed that I didn't know about this at all. Like when I read about it, I was going, <laughs> how has this passed us by? But I do wonder whether it's taught in like Spanish schools and things, because like, it's quite yeah. a big deal. Um, uh, it was part of Operation Chrome Dome, where the US decided that to ensure that they could preemptively launch a nuclear strike against the Soviet Union, this is in 1966, they would constantly have planes circling uh, in Europe to, to prepare for an attack. There was a accident during refueling, which saw four hydrogen bombs, each one 70 times more powerful than the uh, nuclear bomb that exploded over Hiroshima. And all four of them fell to earth over Palomares, the southeast coast of um, Spain. So three of them landed on the land, two of them exploded partially creating like a two kilometer squared plutonium fallout zone mm. and then the fourth was just disappeared no and no one knew where it was uh, the u.s were obviously trying to would try to downplay this as much as they possibly could and denied that it had gone out to that it had landed out at sea and then eventually they had to admit that yes it had um, landed out at sea and they the u.s then launched the largest maritime search in history up to that point to try and find this missing nuclear bomb and to try and limit the the nuclear fallout from it and also i think what was probably even their bigger fear was that the soviet union would find the bomb first and steal all the um all the all the nuclear secrets and get a a steal on the on the Cold War arms race. I see. And then in the meantime as well, you've also got uh, Franco thinking, ah, oh, well, I would quite like to um, develop uh, nuclear capabilities for Spain and was insisting that any evidence that was found was secreted away, away from the US military and given to Spanish laboratories to inspect and to try and work out how to build a nuclear bomb for themselves. And so while the US is desperately trying to downplay the, the whole event, you've got the uh, US ambassador and the then tourism and information minister, uh, Manuel Fraga, going into the sea um, in Palomares and saying, oh, guys, just everyone who's on holiday, just come back in the sea. There's nothing to there's nothing to see here. Everything's safe and dandy. And actually, it wasn't. They exposed themselves to huge levels of uh, radiation. As it was, both men lived very long lives, like I think 89 and 90 years old. Yeah. But a lot of the people who had to clear up um, the plutonium fallout were not so lucky and when died so terribly lucky. premature yeah, lives, which is incredibly sad. The US did brush it under the carpet for a long time. And then potentially with Spain in recent, well, post-Franco, um, wanting to have a stronger relationships with the US and the Western world, it was decided necessarily that it wasn't a great idea to be bringing this up uh, on a repeat basis. I think it was only Barack Obama, uh, there was some level of um, payments that were finally issued. But even so, like, I don't think it's been fully resolved. It's an amazing story that I did not know about, an air of mystery surrounding it with this the location of the fourth. They did eventually find the um, the fourth. And uh, interestingly, if you've ever seen the movie uh, Men of Honor, which has got Rob De Niro and Cuba Gooding Jr., it's basically about a man called Carl Brashear, who was in the front line of this mission to recover the um, nuclear bomb and how he recovers his career. But uh, basically, yes, the US find the, eventually find the bomb uh, using what is this like Bayesian theory, which is like a very cutting edge AI technology today, but at the time was incredibly basic technology to try and just like find where on earth this bomb had landed on the seabed. They got found the bomb, picked it up, and then probably dropped it again and lost where it was on the seabed all over again. So another 16 days until they found it and then eventually recovered it. Quite incredible. Moving on and changing the subject away from nuclear bombs, hydrogen yeah. bombs, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the tiniest villages that you stopped off at. I think it was called Almofita, something yes. like 150 residents. And yes. I like the way you kind of painted the picture of this place, this kind of sleepy village, and you were looking for somewhere to eat. And uh, you got talking to some of the locals there who were quite surprised <laughs> to see you pitching up on your bike. And you also tried uh, a Spanish delicacy there as well. <laughs> yes. Tell us a bit yes. about that. Basically, I was going to Granada um, over the course of two, two, two and a bit days. But this is the first bit of the journey where I was there going, this is going to be hard work trying to cross the Sierra Nevada. So got to um, got to Almacita and basically collapsing uh, in need of food. You couldn't see anyone at all. Just incredibly, all these tiny, empty, cobbled streets with just like a, a fountain going on, crickets. And it was beautiful. But it was also, you're there thinking, this is wonderful. But what I really need is food. And... Um, <laughs> 
you go around the corner when I was about to give up hope and there's a tiny uh, restaurant where lots of people were all just kind of sitting around in the shade. I mean, some people were eating, but they were clearly all at the restaurant, but food was very much a secondary thought to them. They were just kind of passing time. And I something I know I'm not very good at doing. I then <laughs> sat down and uh, tried not to wolf down my um, the food that I, I, I ordered, which uh, I failed miserably at. But yes, the, and the food I ate was um, morcia, which to me was uh, something completely new. And I couldn't get over quite how tasty and delicious it was. And I was telling all my friends, uh, sending the messages back at home saying, I'm going to, this is going to um, check you to the call. This is amazing. Yeah. Because, <laughs> what made me laugh is you were blown away by it, but your initial description we were oh. quite wary at first <laughs> you yes dark shrunken phallic ugliness which <laughs> I, which made me laugh and i have to agree with you it's not the most appealing looking of I mean, yeah you, you look at it and we're thinking like i got it because it was the cheapest thing in the menu and i was thinking like, i mean what could, i mean it's how bad can it be it's gonna come with chips i'll i'll eat the chips at the very least it's tastes so much better than it looks i love it it's delicious i think you know for a lot of people we're a bit squeamish maybe about eating it it's a blood sausage but like you said in the book it's actually very very similar to uh black pudding that we're familiar with back in the uk with our english breakfasts. yeah exactly now yeah. anyway so it's now opened up a whole new um uh, avenue for me for my uh for english breakfast yeah because uh, before i'd always turn my nose up but now i've now i've seen the light just talking about food, it also made me chuckle. I think you mentioned it uh, on a couple of occasions during the book. <laughs> Your discovery of Mercadona supermarket. Like, <laughs> and, I, and I could completely relate to that <laughs> as well. You know, when you're new to Spain and maybe you don't know Spain so well and you discover the bright lights of Mercadona, it's very useful, especially when you're traveling, I guess. Yes. Yeah. No, it was one of those things where like it meant so much to me. And it was like you are there thinking chain supermarket shouldn't mean this much to me. But even if I saw it today, I'd get misty eyed about it. Like um, and it was one of those things. Again, I was there being like, do I include it in the book? But actually, it was it was an important part of each day well, of each day, but many days. And you're yeah. thinking, right, yeah. this is one place where I know I can get very cheap food that will keep me going until dinner. And I can just make things a little bit better with just like a nice little thing from the bakery and and everything, no matter how tired I am, will feel just right again. And, yeah, when you're traveling to lots of different places and everything's changing constantly, just to have um, a few things here and there that you go, right, I loved having that three days ago and I found it again. And I know that there's no, no stress, no complications. I can just go and buy some breads and some bananas or whatever it is it was it provides a little bit of comfort just, yeah. just when I, need it. <laughs> I, I, totally, I totally agree with you and I completely associated with it and, you know yes it is just a chain supermarket but one of the better quality ones I agree with you I think sometimes if you're in Spain and maybe you don't have much language or you feel a bit intimidated going into little small shops and bakeries and whatever ordering stuff um, and also you know in Spain still the kind of takeaway culture getting a, a sandwich to take away or some or a salad or some pasta or something like that hasn't really caught on here but I think you know Mercadona supermarket is a place where you can go and buy some bread and cheese and uh, stuff from the bakery to take away and make yourself a little picnic we haven't got any well any British listeners will be familiar with Pret-a-Manger <laughs> there isn't really anything like that in, in Spain that you can just go in pick something up and walk out with it and eat on the hoof no exactly as soon as you spend any time at all just like there and then just and then you just walk out and just sit on the beach and yeah everything is perfect just that's all you need i'm, I'm glad you included it in the book so granada now then it sounded like you were sort of browbeaten into going there like everybody had said to you you must go to granada everyone had waxed lyrical about it and that you should not omit it from your itinerary but yeah you did have to traverse the uh, sierra nevada to get there tell us just a little bit about the journey to get there and some of your reflections on on granada because it is a stunning city yes so across the sierra nevada and um, which was incredibly hard work um, and just and just beautiful just like some some of the um the way like um i think it's like hannes um is just like tiny tiny village not quite as tiny as almacita but uh just they, they just kind of these white towns that just kind of cling to the uh hillsides and incredibly picturesque and then the descent down into abla um was just worthy of a car advert just it just kept going and going to zigzags um, back and forth back and forth and then after the excitement of that 
and all of the journey and being able to just like see the sea from um, the Sierra Nevada and and looking back down on Al Maria. Uh, the journey then after that became like one of it was just parallel to I can't remember the name of the road, but it was it was one of the less exciting parts of the trip. And I hadn't really thought about it because I was so worried about just getting across the Sierra Nevada. Um, <laughs> and then but yes, and then stopped for the night in Guadix, which I knew nothing uh, about at all. I was very much treating it as a pit stop because I knew I wouldn't really be able to make it through all the way to Granada in that one day yeah. and um, yeah and then found that Guadix of course as, as many of your listeners will know is famous for its uh, cave dwelling population and also its beautiful cathedral and the fact that yes it's got 6,000 people live in caves which is like Europe's biggest cave cave town cave is, town cave settlement yeah it's incredible <laughs> and did yeah. you get to visit the caves uh, yeah I went very early in the morning and was surprised to find that actually one of the museums was open so I kind of was looking around and from the outside and the man who owns the museum and turns out to live in the cave invited me in and I assumed he was going to give me a tour and just like maybe talk me through some things but no he was just there being like nope and you come just he just let me wander through and you realize quite how big these caves are they're like the TARDIS they're massive and I very quickly got very um disorientated as to where I was and you realize quite how much cooler it is in there and just the the setup and the fact they don't have any doors and um and then so carried on from there and then get to Granada Granada I really really liked I can completely see why everyone loves it and the Alhambra is as amazing as everyone says for me the the thing about Granada and this isn't surprising is the fact that it's just it is so touristy maybe it was because I'd just been in the Sierra Nevada and really hadn't seen anyone very much (laughs) at all um for the previous couple of days but it really hit me when I was there going, wow, there is um, a, there's a lot of people all um, milling around. And the fact that you can't even go to the Alhambra on the spur of a moment, everything has to no. be pre And like you're there thinking, yeah, this is a sign of quite how popular um, the city has become. And I think a lot of people don't realise that, that you have to book in advance to to go into the Al- Alhambra. Well, they obviously don't want it completely overrun with hordes of people to, you know, to, pres- to help preserve it. But I agree. And it is very touristy. And I think obviously the Alhambra, I don't know where it's one of the top three tourist destinations in Spain. I think uh, it must be well worth a visit, I think. Um, and and I agree with you. I think you said that um, you didn't find it very well signposted to get to it. You have to walk up this hill to get to the uh, complex. Uh, it's basically a citadel, really, I guess. Um, it's not not massively well signposted. It's a little bit confusing. Yeah, they, they, seem, they seem to assume that it's just on the top of a hillside. Therefore, you'll find it. I mean, and that that is, that is true. But like, when you're going up potentially a lot of hills, you're there thinking, is this the right one? Like, it's not considering yet. Yeah, it, it is like one of the main tourist destinations in the entire country. It's a very studenty city, Granada. It's got a huge student population. Um, I've always found it uh, a very kind of young vibe during term time. Yes, well. and, and and even I think during the summer, um, I imagine. I mean, so I think I noticed this a bit, but maybe I was also preceded it slightly. Is that you get a lot of um, American exchange trips and things that it's such yeah. a um, it's such a magnet in terms of people go right. I want to see some European heritage. I want to see some um, Islamic heritage. Right, we'll send we'll send you off to Europe to um, see Granada and yeah, because yeah. I've noticed being in and now um, in living in America, they're just. When I talk about the book, the first thing almost that comes up um, from Americans is, did you visit the Alhambra? And which is amazing. It shows quite how oh. famous the Alhambra is. Because to me, I mean, the Alhambra is amazing, as I said. But I wouldn't I wouldn't personally put it as like the thing that you must see in Spain above all else. From Granada, you headed down to the Costa del Sol, effectively. You did a stop in Malaga. One of my, I think, favourite cities along the coast there, I think maybe kind of gets a bit of a bad rep or... It's somewhat overlooked as a Mediterranean city, I think, because of its proximity to so many touristy resorts west from Malaga. What were your thoughts on Malaga? Did you like it as a city? I completely agree with your um, perception of it. And it's it's really unfairly, not maligned is the wrong word, but it doesn't get the credit it deserves. Yeah. It is it's this kind of this this hub of, oh, we'll fly into Malaga and then we'll go to X or Y. Yeah. Thinking, actually, no, it, it's not. It offers a lot in itself. Um, like it's yeah the I mean again the architecture the the um you've got the the harbour front the area um in fact both sides um of the of, of the city east east and west you've got incredible stretches of beaches um where you can just hang out and you've got the nice parks and lots yeah. of places lots of nice like often quite low key but 
um lovely places just to spend time and um yeah relax and uh yeah i mean i enjoyed looking at the botanical gardens and seeing um the old forts yeah i i really liked it i yeah thought it was offered far more than its reputation yeah i liked your again a lovely little story that you found out about about this chimney uh this chimney which was part of an old factory from the 1920s but it's got a really kind of sweet story behind it one guy's quest to paint his girlfriend's his lover's name on it which i had i've seen this chimney and i had no idea it's in malaga this is the uh, torre de monica as it's, so, now, as it's now become known <laughs> yes it's now become known indeed yeah so this was a um man in the i think early 1990s who was in a um in a relationship and his girlfriend had told him she didn't want to see him anymore uh and he was heartbroken and he thought i need to win her back so he decided to with his friend to climb up this abandoned um chimney and try and write monica i love you to try and win, win her back and so when she saw it the only problem was halfway along he ran out of paint so i so from memory i think it just said monica and <laughs> which like you'd have thought halfway through you'd be thinking this isn't going to work um but anyway he uh he, he wrote monica and then um like went down the dead of night and uh, then uh, hoped that he was going to get a response he wanted and then it quickly became the talk of the town as everyone's suddenly thinking who is monica why is this this eyesore effectively suddenly been daubed with the words um <laughs> with the word monica and uh, and she was she though was um was 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 touched by the effort and uh, and when she agreed that uh, she'd taken back and they are now as far as i'm aware happily married and i think living in the balearic islands oh really amazing uh, there's been like plays written about this whole episode the arguments the what the him painting the um the tower fantastic and then, story. yes they, and they now have like two children it's just outside malaga past the port heading towards the airport it's between the kind of downtown malaga and malaga airport neighborhood called pacifico the sad thing is, I think that they, I think if you were to see it now, you can't see the um the, the writing. I think it has now been painted over. Painted I, over. I, I think so, because it basically was, it stayed there for a long, long time and then obviously faded. And then they, and then they decided that it, someone, someone at the council decided that actually they would just paint over it, which is a bit of a shame. So your ultimate destination was Gibraltar, um, and, and you did make, obviously, subsequent stop-offs along the way, including Ronda. We haven't got time, obviously, to run through all of the stop-offs, and obviously <laughs> I want people to get a copy of your of your book to explore those places. I'm intrigued by Gibraltar, particularly, obviously, being British. Again, a place I've never been to. I've been sailed past it on the ferry to Morocco. <laughs> so I've had really mixed reviews about it. I think you have to go to Gibraltar with an open mind, but also appreciating it for what it is. Um, if you are expecting incredible beaches or like incredible, I don't know, Spanish culture, there are other places you should probably visit first. However, it is really interesting in the sense that you've got the, the history of how it became British, which I always uh, confused me as a child. And even now as an adult, you're going, how can Britain really lay claim to um, Gibraltar? Every single time it's been threatened that um, Gibraltar becomes um, Spanish, then the uh, Gibraltarian population have a referendum, which uh, they unanimously maintain they are um, British. Amazing being there. The level of civic pride towards Britain is unequaled. Like the London Olympics is the only thing that I can compare it to in terms of the, the sheer number of British flags, like <laughs> masters of royalty, um, the number of like, this, like street names um, of like admirals and Winston Churchill and and the airport alone is fascinating how you just you enter Gibraltar by walking across the runway. Even though, you know, it's completely safe, it feels really, really um, strange. You've got the macaques, which are really famous, obviously, uh, and troublesome. The view up from from the rock is incredible. I like uh, Gibraltar. I mean, for me, I wasn't going to be drawn into going to the Irish pubs and uh, going shopping because I can do that in the UK. But yeah, if you have been in Spain a long time and you're British and you think what I need is a, is a, is a bit of <laughs> is a bit of home, then you are going to get that in Gibraltar. Um, for sure. Yeah. Um, what for you during the trip was the real highlight, the standout place that you visited? Ooh, it's a difficult question. I think for me, some of the some of the real highlights 
were when I was just on my bike in a place in the middle of nowhere with no one around, um, just the sun overhead. And you're just in like, it's incredible, like various parts of Spain where you're in incredible terrain. And you're just thinking, this is this is exactly where I want to be. There's nowhere else in the world I want to be more. And so for people who are um, cyclists, some of the route is or different parts of the route just happen to be um, parts that the Vuelta a España um, have been has, has, has crossed as well. And there's one particular part when I was cycling down from Ronda, from Ronda to Tarifa and then back up to Gibraltar. The area around the Sierra de Grazalema and the um, Park Alconales, um, mm-hmm. it's like a big green stretch of land basically between uh, Ronda and Tarifa, is just some of the best cycling. In fact, it is the best cycling I've ever come across. It's not very hard, um, so therefore you don't need to be very fit to do it or anything. It's just hard enough to like to make you think, oh, you know, I'm 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 working a bit hard. It's got it's shaded. It's got it's got um, like narrow roads that almost no cars go along. A lot of it is downhill because effectively you're going down towards the sea. That would be something I would really recommend if anyone is fancying getting some getting some air and enjoying being out on a bike. If they can make it around there, you'll have a great time. So beautiful and not too grueling. That's uh, that's uh, that's a good <laughs> recommendation. So yeah, up towards Ronda, you've got the Sierra de Grazalema, and then down as you head down towards Tarifa, you've got the Los Alcornocales. I'm just having a look at the map now. Verdant slice from Ronda all the way down to Tarifa. Yeah, and again, it, I knew nothing about either of those two um, parks. No. Uh, but basically looked at them on the map and thought, oh, they look nice. And yes, they're not very direct in terms of their route. Um, but there, yeah, it's it's a nice and also when you do it, you just have to because it's quite so uh, isolated. There are not many places to stop for water, so you just have to try and bring a lot of water with you. In terms of the people you met and the things that happened to you along the way, is there any particular anecdote or situation, person that comes to mind that you'd like to share with us? For different reasons, yes. I mean, the person I was staying with in Altea who just yeah, casually mentioned uh, while I was um, sitting down to breakfast that uh, she strangled the last um, guest she had to stay. <laughs> and now you're there thinking, I don't know how I'm supposed to respond to this because you're there thinking, obviously, she's going to laugh and make it clear she's joking. And then you realise, no, no, she's not joking. And then basically just it was a 20 minute monologue where she's basically trying to. And this is a, a very nice middle aged woman who didn't seem too threatening, but you're there, but it just turned out this long, long um, confession, basically, where she just wants me to absolve her of, of guilt. Yeah. And you're there thinking, I do kind of want to do that. But equally, I don't want to make it sound that strangling guests is OK because I'm not on board. with it. No, it's not OK to strangle a guest. I think you said yeah. in the book, it, it, this sort of went on for 20 minutes or so. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's difficult to. Um, yeah. Like and I was there going, I was trying to eat toast you're there going it felt like you're eating popcorn at the cinema and you're thinking this isn't acceptable <laughs> um i want uh, to ask you just a little bit of practical advice um particularly for hostels and uh, airbnbs yes basically so i was tr- i was booking um say yeah maybe like maybe a day two days in advance um just to make sure i had a place to stay but i wasn't booking um more than one night at any one place without having basically staying there to make sure the person wasn't the kind of person who strangled you um so <laughs> uh, so yeah so i so i did that and that generally worked fine and then sometimes it was quite tricky finding where the airbnb was um and yes some of them were a little bit strange but generally um for me it was a case of making sure that i when someone asked you know what time am i going to arrive i would just have to massively overestimate uh, the time it would take me to cycle from one destination to another just because invariably things happened the bike went the bike broke or I found something that was incredible that I wanted to go and see and so therefore it was much easier just to say oh, I'm going to arrive like I don't know eight or nine o'clock at night just to buy myself some time so I didn't need to worry about messing the host around. In terms of hostels I think the big thing is don't be tempted to to scrimp too much on spending on a room if your room has like more than six people in you won't really get much sleep and you want to try and make sure you've got a bed that's uh for me a top bunk is better than a bottom bunk yeah less <laughs> stapled on and you want to be trying to be away from the toilets but also away from the window because um if you're near the window there are very rarely other curtains and if there are they're often not great and you get noise from the street as well i guess yeah you, you get noise from the street yeah so basically you want to yeah you want to get away from the toilets away from the windows away from the door to the room 
And if you can do all those things, you're probably in a room that's more than six people anyway. So you've just got to try and choose carefully. I like that you said as well, choose a, choose a mixed dormitory yeah. as well. Because you said <laughs> men are smellier and noisier, <laughs> generally more obnoxious than women or girls. Yeah, I like that. For anyone considering doing a cycle journey, holiday, tour, like you've done, what pieces of advice would you give? I think the main thing is just, A, pack light. Um, yeah. I... I know, it sounds obvious and I did pack lights. I knew that it was um that was going because you're there thinking I've got everything I have I'm gonna have to take um with me and obviously that's gonna be weighing me down all the time particularly when I was in Spain I tried to start early in the morning to, to avoid the midday sun but invariably it just meant that I actually had more time to then do sightseeing en route so I was invariably cycling um through the heat of the day yeah. and I was constantly cycling with like three liters of water, which means it's like three kilograms of weight with you in addition to all your stuff. Yeah, try and really be as minimalistic as possible. I think the main advice is it's easy to think that, you know, you you can't do it or that you you really don't need to travel very far each day um, to see amazing things. And you, the body adapts very quickly to the extent that after I hadn't cycled more than I don't think, 10 or 15 kilometers, which I'd done once in the previous six months or a year. So I wasn't in shape at all. And so my body did have a bit of a shock initially. But then after a week, I had my first rest day and my body felt strange for not being on the bike. So you can hire a bike, you can buy a bike very cheaply. You can live off very cheap meals of like bread and in my case, bananas or with a bit of fruit and maybe a muffin here or there from Mercadona if you're if you're feeling <laughs> flush. It's very, very doable. It's I'm, uh, I'm not special and but I've got now got so many special memories. So uh, just get out there and do it. And like you said, you don't have to, each leg doesn't have to be, you know, hundreds of kilometers. <laughs> you could just do 10 or 20 kilometers in a in a day, which would be, I, I suppose, for most people, fairly doable. For example, my one day I, when I was cycling from Altair to Benidorm, I think that was probably like 20 kilometers. Um, so yeah, really. And you don't need to feel guilty about that either, because there's nothing, I mean, you're not, um, no one really at the end of the day is going to be there saying, you know, how many miles do you do today? And you're there going, well, it's just the next place on the map that I fancy visiting. So yeah. it's only you're only doing it for your own benefit. It doesn't need to feel like a competition at all. Can I ask, what did you use to plan your routes? Google Maps or did you buy any specialist maps for, for cycling or anything like that that sort of flags yes. up friendly yes. roads and cycle paths? That probably would have been wise. Uh, <laughs> I Again, I was trying to do everything on a budget. And so Google Maps was useful for sure. Uh, I was also using an app uh, called uh, Maps.me, which has got better over the last few years and as that's completely free and often has routes on it that Google Maps doesn't do for like hiking or um, cycling. The issue I had with it, and, I, and having checked more recently, I think it's better for, uh, it's better now than it was. Basically, it adopted their theory that if you could hike something, you could bike something. Mm. And there are parts along in Spain where that rule does not ha- uh, does not hold. Yes. Um, so <laughs> I had a few um, tricky incidents um, that yeah nearly um, went horribly wrong. The last thing I wanted to ask you, Chris, you know, you really wanted to do this trip to kind of immerse yourself in Spanish culture and language, and you talked along the way about studying grammar when you were laying on the beach or something like that. My question is, in the end, how successfully did you manage to achieve immersion in Spanish culture and language in the end? Is this, this is this a good way, in your opinion, to do it? Again, it comes down, I think, to things like um, how uh, how fluent are you like, in terms of and how how do you define fluency? Um, by the end of my trip, I found that yeah, I'd really I'd made huge strides in the sense that how much I understood because I already understood a fair bit when I was speaking to people and I could certainly get my message across but I was able to actually have like the nice little conversations in shops with owners and stuff just about oh there was like a uh, car that had been involved in a car crash clearly several months before that was still parked outside a shop and you I'd be able to just have a nice chat about that with the shop owner mm. so certainly on a bike you are spending a lot of time by yourself and with your own thoughts so a lot of that time you can spend it before you go entirely mad uh, doing like verb conjugations and <laughs> practicing how you, how you should have said the thing you wanted to say 20 minutes ago, but you didn't. And it does put a bit of pressure on you in, for example, in the evenings when you're there thinking potentially this is my this is a, this is a limited opportunity for me to speak to either my hosts or people at the bar uh, in Spanish and often when you're tired. However, there are so many times throughout the day when you are also stopping for 
food or water or or to ask how to how to get to somewhere and also people when they see you on a bike they have often got questions and either and often other cyclists will want to chat to you and so therefore you are opening yourself up to questions and as long as you're very happy uh, and as I was to always use those as any excuse to speak Spanish then I think you do have a decent opportunity to really uh, make the most of it it's just the case of trying to use and maximize every opportunity you have absolutely uh, yeah. just to speak Spanish which is the, which is the key in the end not to let an opportunity pass you by even though you might not really be in the mood or you feel a bit tired or you feel a bit embarrassed or whatever you, yeah you really have to try and capitalize on those those opportunities you get to to converse with with the locals and the natives it's uh, it's good practice and okay yeah I guess it's useful time cycling to reflect on on your language uh, learning and mistakes you've made and things you want to improve on and <laughs> conjugating verbs i like that you could even do that out yeah. loud on a bike and no one would no one yeah would. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i mean people you might get funny looks and i did but um yeah it does help and yeah just certainly just verb conjugations just make a big difference because it just gives you so much more confidence that you're not just talking complete gobbledygook so yes yeah, absolutely where can people get hold of a copy of just as well it's not about the bike all major bookstores and all book retailers the, for people in Spain, the best place to get it is probably uh, on Amazon, where it's on the, um, the Spanish Amazon page, as well as all the other um, countries. I think for me, it's just important that it's not for just for cyclists. You don't have to be a, a mad um, cyclist to get enjoyment out of the book. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the When in Spain podcast. Oh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. So that was Chris. A big thank you to you, Chris. Uh, if you'd like to get a copy of Chris's book, it's available in all good uh, bookshops in the travel section. And you'll also be able to find it on Amazon as well. And if you'd like to find out more about Chris, uh, you can check out his own website, which is chrisatkinonline.com. I'll put links to this in the show notes. You can also find him on Twitter. Uh, the handle you need is at Chris j-a-t and you can also find him on instagram the handle you need is chris j-a-t as well if you'd like to see some photography from his trip and speaking of instagram if you didn't know uh when in spain also has an instagram page where i post lots of photos from around spain uh, recently did a trip down to almeria the province of almeria and specifically to the area of cabo de gata go and check out my photographs on there and incidentally i'll be publishing an episode all about my travels around almeria a few weeks ago uh, i think that should be published uh, next week so we're going to be looking at almeria city the Cabo de Gata area, the beautiful wild beaches along the coasts of Almeria. Uh, I'll be talking about my observations and insights into that province and my personal recommendations for anyone who's planning to visit Almeria in the future. So that's going to be a kind of armchair travel episode, lots of sounds and descriptions of the various places I visited during my uh, stay down in Almeria. I'll also be talking about some of the fascinating history of the province as well. What else have I got lined up in terms of podcast episodes? Because I am aware that I haven't posted a new episode for or oh, probably almost a month now. So I'm hoping to make up for some lost time by bringing you a flurry of new episodes within the next week or two. Now, I've got a list as long as my arm, as probably as long as my legs, although they're not very long, um, of episode ideas for the future, which I'm busy working on. Uh, it does take up quite a lot of my time planning and getting in touch with potential guests. But having said that, if any listeners have got any uh, story ideas, or any episode ideas uh, that they would like me to research and cover for them. If you've got any places around Spain that you'd like me to try and visit on your behalf. Um, if you've got any places in Madrid that you would like me to focus on. Do get in touch with me via Instagram, via Twitter. You can also email me at wheninspain1 at outlook.com with any feedback, any suggestions for future podcast episodes. I am all ears. I love hearing back from you guys guys. I love receiving feedback as well. And just a couple of things before I sign off for this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please do consider signing up to support it on patreon.com. Um, it's hugely appreciated. Any small donations that you can make, uh, even if it's just uh, uh, the equivalent of a cup of coffee each month, it all adds up and it all helps go towards the time that I uh, spend or invest in putting the podcast 
together. If you're not in a position to do that, no problem. What you could do is leave a review for the When in Spain podcast uh, on the podcast platform where you listen. So that might be on Apple or it might be on uh, any other uh, Android platform or indeed on the When in Spain Facebook group, which does exist if you didn't know. Just search When in Spain on Facebook. And if you're not in the mood to do that, well, one thing you could do, which would be super, super useful in helping spread the word about the When in Spain podcast, is if you know anyone who's interested in Spain or maybe who is planning a trip to Spain at some time in the future, tell them about the podcast. Um, we are something like 101, 102 episodes now. So there's a huge back catalogue of episodes now, which stretch back, I think, three years on all manner of topics about Spain, whether we're talking about history, language, uh, city guides, places I've traveled and I've put little travel guides together, many episodes about food and drink. There are episodes offering practical advice about buying property in Spain, about renting property, about deciding where to live in Spain, about opening bank accounts, about dealing with paperwork, about uh, teaching in Spain, all of those kinds of practical topics. Uh, if you're thinking of coming to live and possibly work here in Spain as well. So don't forget about all of those episodes. If you're fairly new to the podcast and you've only listened to uh, the last few episodes, do check back because there are tons and tons of really useful and, uh, well, hopefully entertaining episodes all about this wonderful country, Spain. Okay, enough rambling on from me. Thank you to all of you guys, the listeners, wherever you are around the world. Thank you for continuing to listen and interact with me over the podcast. And also a big thank you to the patrons who continue to support the show as well. So I'll leave it there. I'll be speaking to you very soon in a brand new episode of When in Spain. But until then, I send you all un abrazo muy fuerte desde Madrid. Venga, hasta luego.